0: Live from the Great White North, this is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. It is May 18th, 2022. My name is Braden Dennis, as always joined by Simon Belanger. Before we get started today, just a reminder, if you are not uh, following or subscribing to the podcast on your current podcast player, one, you might miss a few episodes, but it really helps us. So if you just go and, and make sure you're pressing that follow button on Spotify or the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts or whatever player you're using, we really, really appreciate that. Simon, we got a fun episode today. You're going to talk about real estate. I'm going to talk about SaaS. And much more. I got a deep dive on Thermo Fisher later as well. So it should be a fun one. How you doing, buddy?
1: Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm excited. I've got uh, softball later tonight. The uh, summer season oh, is starting. So uh, I'm nice. pretty, pretty excited.
0: Are you, question for you, are you still drinking like six cups of coffee a day?
1: No, no. So I. Reduce that to about one and a half, two. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I don't mind sharing it with people. So I had like a bit of a scare earlier this year where I had some irregular heartbeats, which ended up being because of uh, a lot of stuff going on, anxiety, the lockdowns, and all that. And then that right. was just a a bit of an eye opener to uh, reduce my caffeine intake. It's it's going much better now, but I know wanted to mention something because I know a lot of people can can relate to that. So I've reduced it by quite a bit. My cap now is two coffees a day.
0: Two coffees a day. Okay. Because the reason I I know that you significantly cut back on your coffee intake for those reasons, like I've known that, but I like sipping on a coffee when we record these podcasts. So now I just crush decaf when I just want a coffee and I don't need, like I don't need four cups a day. Although I do think that Black coffee, you know, one or two a day is actually good for you, but yeah, you can't be doing this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. My (laughs) trick is actually, I do one shot of espresso with hot water, so an Americano, and there's about a quarter of the caffeine of a regular coffee, and it still gives you that coffee taste. That's my trick. Oh,
0: there you go. Okay, before we kick it off today, join TCI.com is our Patreon page. You can see our personal monthly portfolio updates and you get a shout out for subscribing. So we got a long list here because we just launched it naturally. Jay, Trish, Fong, Brittany, Rachel, Justin, David, Kyle, Johnny, Adam, Tyson, Sean, Stephen, Barry, Joe, Travis, and Greg. Thank you very much for supporting the show. You can do that at joinTCI.com. All right, Timon, kick us off with a update on Canadian real estate. I know we talk... of the time about stocks. But of course, people want to know about real estate too. And we're seeing some things getting shake up in the real estate market here in Canada.
1: Yeah. So there's been some recent interesting data coming out uh, of the Canadian Real Estate Association. So the acronym here is CREA. I'll be talking about them quite a bit because they're the ones usually coming out with this data. We normally talk about this during our news and earnings release, but the data came out on the same day that we recorded, so we didn't have time to adjust our notes. I just decided to do a segment here, but a little more thorough than just the the news and notes. Here are some of the highlights that came out. Volume of home sales dropped by 12.6% compared to April of this year. Overall activity levels dropped 25.7% compared to the peak period's reached in 2021. The number of new listed properties was down 2.2% versus April well, last month. The average home price went down 6% to $740,000 compared again to last month. In the CREA release, the senior economist noted that interest rates on fixed mortgages essentially went up one percent in the span of a month it may not sound like much but here's a quick breakdown of what impact it can have on your monthly payment a lot of people may hear one percent and just think oh why would one percent make such a big difference in housing well you know, in a lot of scenarios, people were looking at a rate for five years fixed around 3% and now they're looking at 4%. And I wanted to show the difference between that 1% gap, that one or 100 basis point increase month over month and what it does. The first scenario here is someone looking to purchase a home for $500,000. They put a down payment of 10% or $50,000. There is CHMC uh, mortgage insurance that is included here in the in the calculation in the numbers I'll give. It's amortized over 25 years and then five years fixed rate. So the 3% mortgage rate equals a monthly payment of $2,195. The 4% mortgage rate monthly payment is 2,440. So we're seeing an increase here of about $250 in increased payments. It's quite a bit of money when you think that it's essentially just your disposable income that goes towards that. So that's something to keep in mind. Before I go to the second scenario here, any comments, Braden?
0: When you said volume of home sales dropped 12.6%, yeah, that's the number I've seen get thrown around as well. I haven't read the report. Does that include, is that just all sales? Does that include like condos and stuff as well?
1: Yeah, I believe their data includes everything. Yeah.
0: Okay. Wow, that's I mean that's a lot, but it's off a pretty high base, right? And so, yeah, I mean I'm not surprised, right? Especially and in these scenarios, you're going to go through another scenario with a higher purchase price here. I saw just anecdotally myself people going way, way in the upper range of their budget. And when they were actually closing on something and they're in a bidding war, All of a sudden they're like 250 K above their budget, like at a minimum here in the GTA. And that's that concerned me quite a bit as just someone watching from afar and not like not in the weeds on that. And and so I'm I'm just kind of not surprised that this is I think it's going to make a pretty big impact like from a macro perspective in the country as well.
1: Yeah, no, I I totally agree. And I think it's important to understand too, a lot of times people are looking to buy a home, they'll have a budget in mind, but then they're actually approved for more. And then what we've been seeing in the current market, and I've talked to a few realtors that definitely convey that same sentiment, is then people will have a budget, they can't find the home they want for that budget, and then they essentially end up going up to pretty much the max that they can be approved for a mortgage. And that's where it gets really scary.
0: My buddy, I'm not going to obviously say who it is because it's confidential. He slings a lot of houses. He's one of the most successful real estate agents I know, probably the most successful real estate agent I know. And he's always asking me, he's like, what is the instrument I short (laughs) the... How is the listing prices I am putting up on these houses right now? It makes no sense. It's based off no fundamentals. And so it's kind of funny to hear someone who's kind of in that and is a re- real estate agent being like, dude, this is something's got to give.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good question. I'm, I'm. there's definitely some ways to do it. I, I'm probably I, not... I just
0: told them that's an extreme sport. And yeah. one, I don't know how to, and two, it could blow up in your face. So I don't want to be the one to tell you anything.
1: <laughs> yeah exactly because there's factors you just can't control there now, the second scenario if you have uh, a bigger budget, so you're looking at a one million dollar purchase price, I know for a lot of areas in the country, this might sound like a lot, but for people like you and I, even in Ottawa, it's not uncommon to see one million purchase prices uh, in the neighborhood I live in actually like one million if you're looking for a standalone you'll get one, but it's usually not renovated or anything like that now. I use a different percentage for the down payment just because uh, you avoid CHMC and it's only the CHMC insurance is only available I believe under a million dollars so I went ahead and just put a 20% down payment for this one so $200,000 so this means you have a mortgage of 800,000 if it's amortized over 25 years. 5 years fixed rate so 3% mortgage rate equals to a monthly payment of 3786 And then the 4% mortgage rate equals to a monthly payment of $4,208. So that's almost, that's $450 and different. And again, I think it's important to stress here that it's disposable income. I know the banks and the financial institutions that provide mortgages will look at your, I'm sure they have calculations in in the background, but usually they'll look at your gross income, but then they, they have some calculation to see if you can afford it and whatnot. But that's a real difference in mortgage costs, and it's only the mortgage costs. It does not include any other costs that may have increased significantly in the past year, like heating, electricity, or property maintenance costs. Another thing that's putting pressure on home prices, and they did mention that in the CREA release, is that the stress test that the banks had to use is either one of two things. So it's either 5.25% or the actual rate that you're approved for, plus 2%. Well, given that most rates now are 4% or higher for fixed rates, that means that now the new stress test threshold is around 6%. So that's making a big difference for people to see if they're able to be approved. Hopefully, the, the whole point of this was just to put things into context. Yes, the prices overall you know have gone pretty crazy during the pandemic and it's but it's just important to put things in perspective here and I know a lot of people want to buy a home it's a goal for them people want to buy a home start a family you know it's kind of part of a lot of the life path for a lot of people but keep in mind that if you really stretch yourself out you might be able to buy the home but you know, you fix in that rate, it's for five years, and then you're looking five years down the line. If the interest rates are way, way up, you could be in for trouble. So I think that the moral of this store is just making sure that you have a reasonable budget and you don't stretch yourself out too much. Because if you have a certain lifestyle to follow, and you have certain things you want to do in your life, uh, the bank doesn't care. They just want to see if you can afford your mortgage. And that's it.
0: I look at this and I'm just like, add so much extra stress if you are stretching yourself thin. That's, that's all I can think about this. Like in your example there, that's like a car payment. That's a car payment every month or more, or that's your DCA contribution to your investment portfolio. That's your dollar cost average you put in. You know, if, that, if that evaporates so that you can get some shoebox in Toronto, I mean it it's concerning to me. I mean and yeah. I I just I just never want to go I'm going to go I'm going to go live in Costa Rica for <laughs> $15 a day.
1: And keep in mind the last thing I'll mention here this is 1% increase. 1%. Yeah.
0: yeah, no no, we're just talking about like rates being so low already, but this is what happens when people go crazy with low interest rate environments. This is the short-term long-term credit cycles and why there's like this boom and bust consistently in the way we we run uh, like a, a monetary policy. It's just, it just, it, it doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes over and over again. All right, let's talk about uh, SaaS. SaaS multiples in particular, SaaS valuations to make it a little bit more simple.
1: You want to explain to people in case we have some new listeners what SaaS is quickly?
0: I do. I absolutely do. I have right here software as a service. SaaS. Thanks for that, by the way, Simon. SaaS, what I refer to, is just software as a service. And what that means, software as a service, is basically people subscribing for some software. And typically, when they say SaaS, it means that it's a cloud-based application. Like true SaaS means that it's a cloud-based application. There are about 90 in this study. There are about 90 SaaS, public SaaS companies. So they have their public stock listed on the markets. Their multiples have imploded. Like the state of the implosion of SaaS multiples and high growth tech, these kinds of businesses, like can't be understated. This is like, I've never really seen as an investor myself, this kind of multiple compression this fast. Like it's, it's, it's truly like tech bubble vibes, but in a small corner of super overvalued software as a service stocks that just went way too high. And there was so many IPOs. That's a good, that's a good probably a good gauge for it. Like they're all just IPOing at 50 times sales. And so um it just became the norm. So median public equity SaaS traded for 50.8 times sales at their trailing 12 month peak sales multiple. So that was the median of these 90 companies. If you take the median of their peak sales multiple. I know it's kind of confusing, but whatever their highest peak multiple was over the last 12 years for every company, what's the median of all of them? It's 50.8. High. That's all you need to know. High. Very, very high. Okay. It has dropped significantly to less than 10X across these 90 companies. It's around 8.99 9 times sales right now. First an ex- example here. You can see on the show notes here, Simon, There's a there's a long list of them, but uh, Sentinel One, the cloud security business, cybersecurity business, went from 108 to six x. Snowflake went from 93 to 5.2. Asana, the like work management platform, went from 73 to nine. Again, that was another fairly new IPO. Snowflake was a fairly new IPO. Sentinel One's a fairly new IPO. Shopify not a new IPO, but went from 42 to seven lightspeed 31 to 3 like i'm trying to look on the list here any other crazy well, ones bill.com yeah bill.com 69 nice to 15 so it's still yeah, i don't know
1: all the tickers but uh yeah i recognize so, monday
0: yeah. monday is like an asana competitor zoom info's kind of held it's multiple it's still above 15 and so where I'm getting at this is that now, you know, there's they're sub 10x now, which is kind of crazy compared to where they were, right? Like, I didn't, I saw this, the multiple compression coming fast, but I didn't think that it would, it would go like sub 20, sub 15 in just a two quarters, right? Like,
1: yeah, pretty I much. Mean, yeah, it's two been quarters. about six months, yeah. Cause it was about maybe, yeah, maybe a little more, but it was it November ish. Really yeah. It when, peaked the, around, when the tide yeah, started to fall.
0: come in in November. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when, when the tide comes in, you see who's wearing pants and and these multiples, <laughs> these multiples were not wearing pants. Now there was a bubble going on. I, I think that that's true. Here's the thing. Some of them have actually become quite attractive. The bubble was built on high growth rates and unbelievably good business models, which I believe both of those to be true. High growth rates. I mean, that's, that's not just my opinion. These, these are extremely fast growing companies and I do believe they have unbelievably good business models, recurring revenue, insanely good margins, scale infinitely, relatively fixed cost structure, tons of operating leverage. Like all the things you could ever want in a business model is kind of sass. Like it, it kind of is. And they are still great business models, but the market got a little bit smarter okay, they realize some of these never seem to be profitable. There are lots that are profitable, but a lot of them, like, at what point does operating leverage kick in? You're a global business, right? Like You're a $50 billion market cap company. You know, at some point, you need, you need some real money. And stock-based compensation is a really big problem. And it's kind of a necessary evil for them to attract high-quality tech talent. And so, both of those things are not good for investors over the long term. So I'm going about this in a different way. I've listed all the reasons why that's, uh, that's the case. I think they got a little ahead of itself. I, th- I still think they're wonderful business models. When the market zigs, you got to zag, man. You got to zag. That's how you make money in this game. And all this stuff has gone from extremely sexy, you know, arc Innovation owns it, to huge drawdowns, regardless of fundamentals. And some of these will be gigantic winners from this point moving forward. And some are going to fail, such as life, right? Some of them are going to fail. But there are some really high quality businesses in the mix here, like wonderful. Off the top of my head, ones that come quick that are like, have actual sticky products. They have wide competitive advantages. There are network effects. There's integration modes, which I find really important. They actually generate free cash flow. Would you look at that? So stuff like that. Intuit ticker INTU, ServiceNow ticker NOW, Autodesk ticker ADSK, CrowdStrike the cybersecurity business ticker CRWD, the Trade Desk ticker TTD, Zoom Info ticker ZI, and HubSpot ticker HUBS, which I'm getting now familiar with my own business and this this platform is like gigantic. Zoom Info is an interesting company, actually.
1: I, I don't know creepy. that one all that much. All I know about it is that it got a huge boost because people were <laughs> yeah. thinking it was Zoom. Because the tickers
0: actually. Yeah. yeah, or I guess it's a ZI, but. Was the ticker originally Zoom? Something happened, right? Where yeah, well, I think
1: people the... were like typing in Yahoo Finance, like Zoom, and then this was like the first result, and people right. were buying it thinking it was Zoom communication. They, they
0: thought like, oh, I'm going to buy Zoom stock during the pandemic. Everyone's using this, and they were buying yeah. Zoom info. That's right. Yeah,
1: I'm pretty sure it got a, a actually a pop around the time that Zoom went uh, public. Yeah. Went public.
0: <laughs> and it's the, the that's something and the like market's that efficient yeah. right the market's yeah. efficient people can't even get the right tech they're buying the wrong business hilarious, but regardless, Zoom Info is an interesting company they uh kind of creepy actually it's basically data on every single person so if you're trying to like if I'm trying to figure out your identity because I want to sell you someone, i give you a cold call, a cold email I'm like Simone Bell and Jay, he runs the Canadian Investor Podcast. I have this podcast startup for Canadians. This is great. I need his info. And Zoom Info will, will have it. It's kind of creepy. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and just to wrap this up, there are more, of course. There's also like big tech, which has fallen quite a bit. All of those companies I listed are c- customers of big tech cloud giants like Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. So all I'm saying is that it got a bit ridiculous but you gotta zig when the market zags, and you gotta you gotta think you can't have groupthink. And and if you're someone that is like I'm not buying this junk, it trades for eighty times a zillion nosebleed times sales, doesn't make any money. Some of them might be interesting all of a sudden, and uh, that's that's just to keep I don't know, just keep an open mind. That's all I gotta say.
1: Yeah, I think you forgot one name. Was was it the steer or Face Drive?
0: Oh face! Oh oh yeah, the highest quality yeah. of companies. is drive.
1: So delivery as a service. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did FaceDrive re? uh they they rebranded. Re-listed, rebranded. Yeah, yeah. Another Ponzi scheme begins. Those scumbags.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. I just sorry. It was too easy to.
0: No, to it's good. It's now. good. Now for our next
1: segment, looking back at Bitcoin past bear markets, presented by ShakePay. It's been a really wild ride if you're invested in crypto in the past six months. Uh, Bitcoin is down 55% since it's reached its all-time highs on November 10, 2022. During that same time span, the Nasdaq is down 27% as a whole. We all know it's been much worse for some names. I mean, We just went over some of the names in our previous segments uh, that you talked about, and uh, some of them are down way more than 55%. I think it's important here to put context. I recently came across an article from Don Peters posted on CBC and it was, and I'll say in air quotes, but an analysis. But clearly it only looked at things from one lens and did not provide much context for the recent crypto bear market. There was a lot of things wrong with the article, in my opinion. He mentioned first that Bitcoin was down nearly two thirds since its peak. The actual number is around 55 to 58% depending on when the numbers were taken in the past week. You also failed to mention that some well-loved growth names like Shopify, which we both own, is down more than 75% over the last 6 months when they actually published that article. I'm all fine if people want to be critical of Bitcoin and crypto and that's fine. Like, you know, you're allowed your point of view, you're allowed to think what you want and it's just I really wonder if he actually has taken the time to understand the technology behind it, and the fact that it was labeled in analysis was pretty laughable in my opinion. I honestly did some more thorough research, I think, when I did papers in high school. Hey, let's go, t dude. Yeah. I love I love the heat. Yeah, right it's now. just it just kind of bugs me. Like you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to agree with Braden. That's fine. You don't have to share the same views, but at least attempt to look at both sides. I think that's where I come from. There's a lot of people that I follow and people that follow me that don't believe in crypto and Bitcoin. And I totally respect their opinion, but most of them are actually reasonable, I would say. So, you know, either they don't understand the technology or, you know, they need a bit more time for the technology to be proven, which is all fair. So that's why I just wanted to uh, get that off my chest. But in terms of historical- Having an open
0: mind is is pretty much everything, not just like investing. I think that it's, it's important to make money in investing as well. I think it may be one of the most important character traits yeah. in investing is being open minded. But the real superpower is being able to change your mind when when presented with new facts.
1: Yeah, and it's not easy. And I'm sure, like even I know sometimes I notice myself with having certain bias, and I have to check myself for that. And it's not easy when you have certain ideas, obviously. But I, I do try to even you know sometimes look at the opposite thesis to see if someone was completely against an investment I make, whether it's crypto or something else and try to understand their point of view so I can put hole in my own
0: thesis. Yeah, no, I think that that's the right thing to do.
1: Yeah. So now here's a view for those, especially those who are in crypto and may not have experienced uh, bear markets of uh, Bitcoin specifically here. Uh, You can make a case that there was actually another one uh, that happened in 2021 that's not included here after the uh, China mining ban, but it was short lived compared to the big ones that I'll go over. So the 2011-2012 bear market and obviously Bitcoin was in its infancy here was just a few years removed from its creation. The price of Bitcoin fell from $29 to $2.10 from June 8, 2011 to November 18, 2011 from that so that's a <laughs> that's a whopping 93% down from the peak. Needless to say, if you bought Bitcoin at the all-time highs at that time and you're still holding, you're probably listening to this podcast <laughs> on a beach right now.
0: <laughs> you're off the grid.
1: You're off the grid. I mean, you are a multimillionaire, if not more at this point, assuming you invested probably more than a few hundred dollars at the time and you just huddled all the way until today. But it took until early 2013 for the price of Bitcoin to reach $29 again. So just to keep that in mind. And then the 2014-2016 bear market, the price of Bitcoin went from $1,135 in December 2013, all the way down to a bottom of $175 in January of 2015. This was a drawdown of 85% over that time span. So if you bought if you bought at those new all-time highs of a thousand dollars, one hundred thirty-five, the two major things that happened here: so Bitcoin was definitely gaining some prominence compared to uh, the previous bear market. But I don't know if you remember this one, Silk Road Marketplace. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So. For those who are not aware of what Silk Road was, and I think there's a, some documentaries out, out there that you can find pretty easily on Silk Road. And you know I've stream. watched all of
0: them. Those are right yeah, up my Yeah, exactly.
1: Alley. Uh, basically, <laughs> Silk Road was a dark web exchange where people could pay in Bitcoin so people could, you know. Buy, you know, illicit drugs, um, a lot of different things. I think there was also like, you know, sexual trade being done on there. I think it was a lot of different things that were traded. And but then What that- is it
0: about nerds doing crime that is so fascinating? Like yeah. The I'm, nerdiest guys, yeah. like not the like gangbangers that you think of that are selling drugs online. When the nerdiest yeah. kid you th- can think of in your high school is shilling out millions of dollars of illicit drugs via Bitcoin. I'm like, this is amazing. This is hilarious.
1: Yeah, and obviously, thankfully, the exchange got shut down here. But a lot, you know, it got shut down. But there's al- also the Mount Gox exchange that collapsed and suspended trading in 2014. So you had those two events that kind of happened during that time frame. And a lot of people think it was one of the big reasons for the that bear market. And then it took until early 2017 for Bitcoin to reach uh, the previous all time high. So reached that at a, Thousand dollars, one hundred and thirty-five again, and then we have the most I would say prominent bear market for Bitcoin, the one that happened from twenty eighteen to twenty twenty. This is probably the best known one. I know you're familiar with it. The price went from nineteen thousand six hundred forty to three thousand one hundred eighty-five. And I'm using here the prices. I'm using are in U.S. dollars, just because it's a bit more consistent. The This was a drawdown of 84%. A lot of people attribute this crash to a huge demand for ICOs. So ICOs are initial coin offerings. So these like altcoins or I know some of the people I follow will use the term shitcoins. And I think it's uh, appropriate for a lot of them to be honest. And. ICOs were just popping left, right and centers or were scams. There was a lot of things wrong with a lot of ICOs. But what happened is many exchanges only allowed their users to deposit fiat and then exchange it for Bitcoin. And after that, users had to use other exchanges or services that would allow them to buy ICOs with those Bitcoins. So a lot of the demand was because of retail investors trying to get into that ICO craze. And then, of course, it took until late 2020 for Bitcoin to get back to its all-time highs after the pandemic. So what should you make of this? Well, if you bought Bitcoin at any of the all-time highs in the previous bear markets, you're currently up 50% or more. I'm excluding the China mining ban here, of course. And here are some things that I do that have to help me weather some, you know, some, bear markets that I've been a part of because I've seen some of these. First of all, I don't trade. I do hold for long periods of time. It's not easy to trade an asset as volatile as Bitcoin. And then there's the capital gains tax. If you sell at a profit, that can be a nightmare if you trade a lot. I don't use leverage. Leverage can be great if it's a bull market, can maximize your gains, but it can also accelerate your losses. And in worst cases, it'll completely wipe you out. I don't check the price of Bitcoin every single minute. It trades twenty four hours a day, so it's easy to check it all the time. It's easy to wake up at night and check it. I'll usually check it a few times a day, and that's it. But for some, it might be only to check it once a week, once a month, or
0: once in a blue moon. That you might You check help. the price of Bitcoin multiple times a day. I check it once or twice. Yeah, yeah. That's that's surprising to me. Yeah, but okay, it's just too easy. Yeah, well, it is too easy, but still, I'm, I'm I am surprised by that.
1: Yeah, I definitely check it more than stock prices, I'll be honest. And then, you know, I just don't panic, though. Like, it doesn't really phase me. It's usually because I'll have a bit of money on on ShakePay. And then sometimes if I see a pretty quick drop or something, I'll just add a, a little bit. But usually I do some regular interval DCAs. But the last thing here, learn more about the technology. I found that the more I understood Bitcoin and the technology behind it, the easier it made it to sustain bear markets, and I think you can really you can really relate that to owning stocks as well, where when you understand the business very well, you don't panic if there's a large drop in the holdings that you have i mean you mentioned unity right that you bought uh you know by a draw 35 or 40 percent and brayden just put all his life savings uh, into it afterwards but uh,
0: <laughs> i doubled it okay yeah, yeah. just kidding my but- life savings is not not enough
1: But the last thing I will say, you know, only invest, especially in crypto, but, you know, Bitcoin as well, what you can afford to lose. If that means it's 0.5% of your portfolio, that's fine. If you don't want to put anything in Bitcoin or crypto, that's also fine. It's your hard earned money. You should decide what you do with it. The last thing I'll say here is the worst that can happen, it goes down to zero. The upside, on the other hand, I'm not going to speculate on it, but could really be massive if a lot of the premise do come true for Bitcoin in the next decade. Um, so I'll end it on that. But I think it helps for people that may be living the crypto bear market for the first time to just understanding what's ha- what has happened in since the inception of Bitcoin.
0: I uh I don't log on very often. That's 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 just what I do. I don't even I don't even know what the price is. I couldn't tell you a single thing, and I like it that way. <laughs> that's just the way I roll.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not good.
0: <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about Thermo Fisher. We'll round out today's episode with a deep-ish dive on uh, Thermo Fisher. So Thermo, or what I'm going to call Timo probably the way. I th- uh, it's the ticker TMO, and I just call them TMO. TMO, you might have you might recognize their logo around. There's there's offices around the world. I mean, it's it's a fairly it's one of those things we've seen it. You've seen it many times. It's Red Riding, Thermo Fisher Scientific. They offer four hundred thousand diverse customers across. Uh, they have sorry they have. 400,000 diverse customers across its four major segments. And they are the leader in the global laboratory solution space. So if you're looking at like instruments and equipment in labs, Timo dominates this space. Their products are like deeply entrenched in customer workflows. So if you're, if you're doing like biotechnology research, there is a Almost guarantee that almost everything you use is Thermo Fisher in terms of equipment, processes, and uh, devices, and, and and reusable stuff as well, as well as stuff that you need to keep replacing. Not many companies can keep up with Timo's innovation because they just have this outrageously high level of in-house expertise. They have a hundred, yeah, hundred and thirty thousand employees, and so it's a uh, it's a diverse workforce. They are the picks and shovels company, which I like to This is the way my brain usually works. It's like, okay, who's making lots of money, but who is sup- who is supplying them? Who is the uh, the API solution to this, this software company? And this is like fast growing cloud companies I was just talking about. I'm like, okay, but who are they paying all their money to? <laughs> it's Amazon. And so this is the way I think about it. And they are the picks and shovels in science. Okay. If you think about like science, our advancement in science from like a health perspective, from a biotechnology perspective, from a microbiology perspective, Thermo Fisher is the picks and shovels almost monopoly on the business. So they're end market agnostic, which is kind of the important term there. Whatever the newest, hottest market is in science, whether it's biotech, whether it's, you know, some company trying to get drug approval, Thermo Fisher is the one behind the scenes supplying these companies and supplying their research process. so when when I get across my plate some hot biotech stock that someone's telling me about, I'm thinking to myself, okay, biotech is so boomer bust. It is like, huge, huge payout if you're right, like huge payout if they get drug approval. But so many of them are duds. That is not the way I like to invest my money. And so every time I hear this uh, hot biotech stock come across my plate, I'm thinking, hmm, thank you for telling me about a Thermo Fisher customer. And so that's that's the way I'm looking at the world here. Any quick questions before I talk about their competitive advantages, capital allocation, anything like that?
1: No, no. I think biotech for me is just, uh, it's not a field that I I understand really well. So investing specifically in companies like you just said, like, you know, completely that will develop uh, new drugs and things like that or treatments. I don't know enough about the field that would be just throwing like darts blindly. But I know some people who know about it quite well, what they'll usually do is they'll kind of find companies that have good prospects and then they'll do kind of a basket approach because they know even having the knowledge, they'll probably miss out on, they'll probably evaluate incorrectly or it won't be approved or there's so many variables that, there's so you know, many variables. as long as a couple of them out of 10 end up being big winners, they end up, doing having good returns but they usually have a pretty deep knowledge of the field anyways.
0: Right. And the people that I know that have the deepest knowledge in this field. I am not one of them, by the way. I'm not a doctor. They're all Thermo Fisher shareholders. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> people who know about this really well yeah. <laughs> because they know it's the picks and shovels, you know, the t- the 10 basket of companies, the biotech one that your buddy looked at. That's it. That's a list of 10. Thermo Fisher customers. Okay, so their laboratory solutions portfolios has main seg four main segments. It's life sciences, analytical instruments, specialty diagnostics, and lab products and services. And so they're all very similar, and they cross sell to each other. And that is one of their competitive advantages. Is like okay if you're if you're supplying. It's like what you and I talk about, where it's like okay if you're supplying the hardware. Then you can also supply the services and the recurring, you know, the recurring nature or the processes or the software that go with that. That's really hard to disrupt and makes it really sticky. And that's a very similar type of analogy here with all their different segments here on uh, serving life sciences. So capital allocation, they do a ton of acquisitions. So they buy out the small guys, they buy back stock in a prolific way. And they pay a respectable and growing dividend. So it's kind of like the the holy grail trifecta of capital allocation. In terms of competitive advantages, their scale of expertise is kind of insane. They have 130,000 employees. They spend about $1.5 on R&D in 2021. And so that's an important part of their capital allocation structure as well, because you can't be in this game and not be on the forefront of of science, right? It would be it would be silly to run your business like that. And another really deep competitive advantage before I wrap up here is just their customers I love these types of moats, by the way. Their customers have to comply with certain regulatory requirements. Of course, right? It's such a it's an important thing that people comply with. It's it's people's lives, it's health, it's safety. And so these pharmaceutical scientists and research firms and biotech companies have to submit manufacturing information to demonstrate that if they're going to manufacture and properly get approval when submitting an NDA, a new drug application, n- not a non-disclosure, a <laughs> new drug application NDA to the U.S. like FDA. It had, it, part of that, it requires you to submit the exact details on the equipment that you're going to use, the supplies, how you're going to supply the, and how you're going to actually manufacture the drug, where it comes from, like all this stuff. And once it's approved, say you do go through, and the FDA gives you approval, the process the company outlined in that new drug application, NDA, has to be static. The company cannot deviate from it. So, if there are any changes into the process, like all of a sudden you're not going to use this Thermo Fisher system, they have to submit a new NDA to the FDA. You think they're going to do that? Hell no, hell no. And so it's a it's a really high switching cost. All the major competitive advantages and moat that I think of, Thermo Fisher kind of checks almost all of the boxes. And the highly complementary nature, as I was talking about, of their products and services, the deep embeddedness into the workflows of these drug companies, their need for regulatory compliance, their customers stick around forever. They faced high retraining costs, high switching costs. Moving away from Thermo Fisher, just one seems ridiculous to do. There might not be anyone else in town but you could actually be locked in legally via your NDA or FDA approval to keep using it indefinitely. And so, uh, yeah, it's just a high level overview of Thermo Fisher. The, the elevator pitch for it is it's the the picks and shovel on the advancement of science. And they, it's been a phenomenal stock to own.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I need to learn more about that space. And I, I, I probably I don't really have an excuse I should ask I have my uh, little cousin who's a few years younger than me who uh, works I won't name the company but for a large uh, pharmaceutical company he's a researcher so he definitely knows quite a bit about how it does I mean we've talked about it before but Three quarters of this stuff, I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't either. This is
0: just my, yeah. like, this is just our research, right? Uh, like, yeah. This is just I the I have to constantly, research. like,
1: ask him. I'm like, okay, so what does that mean? What does this mean? Because he, like, <laughs> obviously, when you're used to talking about a subject with your peers, it's, you know, there's acronyms and stuff that you're just used to it. But that's the one thing that came to mind. But yeah, it's definitely, uh, it sounds like an interesting company based on what uh, you uh, went over.
0: They IPO'd in 1982.
1: Hey, It's older than me. Hey, yo.
0: Yeah, it is. (laughs) I feel young. You'd be up (laughs) 48,000%. It's not bad. It's not bad. Before this drop-off, it's it's on a drawdown. So maybe a little stocks on your watch list segment here. You'd be up almost 60,000% up until the end of last year. Wow. So, I mean, hey you you faced big drawdowns along the way remember look at this yeah you 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 uh you were down over 65% in the uh late 90s there you were down another 40% in the great financial crisis but it's been steady eddy since there it's been a 10 bagger and almost 15 bagger since then but i just think that these are the types of durable companies that i think are worth owning I'm not trying yeah. to own the boom and bust companies that are going to, I have to be right on timing. I have to be right on the company. I have to be right on the market being ready for it. I have to be right about FDA approval. There's just too many variables I know I'm not going to get right. And that's why I, my brain goes towards these durable high moat picks and shovels play. And, uh, yeah. uh, Thermo's and, and you're
1: not in the field, right? You're not, it's not. I'm not in the field either. Yeah.
0: No, exactly. All right. That does it for this one, guys. Really appreciate. Thank you so much for listening. With uh, everything I just pulled off of for Thermo Fisher, that's what you get when you search up Timo in Stratosphere. I just listed the investment thesis, the competitive advantage, their metrics. I didn't even really talk about growth, but you can find their exact financials how fast they're growing, what their dividend per share is, all that stuff, and you will go from knowing nothing about Thermo Fisher to at least having a very good base. Like I think investable knowledge; these things become investable quick, very quickly. And so, all you have to do is go on to go to and type in Timo and you'll get that. Thanks so much for listening, again, guys. Really appreciate it. We can't we can't thank you guys enough. It's going to be a good summer. Simone and I are going to keep pumping out these episodes twice a week for you guys. And the show goes on. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken
1: as investment or financial advice. Brayden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.